Really excited to have Dr. Dan Doriani join us today to talk about biblical interpretation and how to apply the Bible accurately. Hello and welcome, Dan. Uh, good to be here with you, David. Oh, thank you. Dan, in case anyone listening has not been in contact with your work before, please feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah, so probably the best way to say it is that I'm a professor at a seminary for a long time, but I also have had my hand in the church world almost constantly. So one way to say it is I was a college professor for five years, teaching Bible and theology mostly at a seminary for 32 years, most of that full time, not all, because it took about a decade out to be a pastor of a pretty big church, complicated church in the area. And uh, so I've been a pastor of a very large church and, and of a very small church. And I've been an interim pastor a bunch of times. And one way or another, I preach most weeks somewhere for many, many years. So I'm an academician who is uh, deeply connected with the church and regular teaching and preaching in the church, not just academically. And so that leads to you books, you know, commentaries on various books of the Bible and books on interpreting the Bible, including the one that's just coming out right now, second edition of Getting the Message. You've become quite the expert, known as the expert for biblical interpretation. So why does the Bible need interpretation? Why can't we just read it like any other book and apply the bits that we like, Dan? Right. Well, to some extent, we do read it like any other book. I mean, you know, if, if it says grass, we uh, we have to have experience of grass. We know what grass is. Or we read the word horse. We know what a horse is. And, and of course, you know, the word the is the word the in every, you know, every language. But the Bible is very different in important ways. For one thing, it's two to three and a half thousand years old. And anytime you read a very old book, you need to remember that times were very different. So today, for example, if we read a word like king, we think of a figurehead who's living in Monaco or something, racing cars and, and generally living off some past traditions. But king meant somebody who worked. That was a job. And they often had a very small uh, principality they cared for. And they'd probably, you know, small king of a little region would possibly know most of his people and care for them. So the word king means something very different today from what it meant then. And when we read about Jesus as king or God as king, we have to have a very different concept of what that means from what we would think if we just picked up um, a current piece of literature. The other thing that's even more important than that, of course, is that the Bible's God's word and mm. infallible, inspired, inerrant, and our guide for life. There are certain things that we might read that are infallible. We might read a weather report that's infallible. That is to say, it exactly predicts the temperature, but it doesn't guide us for all of life. It guides us as to whether we should wear a jacket or not, and if we should take an umbrella. And the other thing, of course, is that when we read any book, we can assess whether it's useful or useless and whether we'd like to follow the advice given in or not. And people do read the Bible that way. They, oh, it's an interesting book, and maybe I'll get some comfort from that. Or I'm willing to be challenged by it. I call that reading beside the text or over the text. Like, I'll decide what's true and what isn't. That's reading over the text. Beside the text is... Yeah, I'm willing to be challenged, but I'm, I guess I'm the final arbiter in the end. But under the text is saying, you know, this is this is the living God, or as a Christian, this is my Lord who has spoken to me. And it, I should expect him to say things I don't like unless I'm perfect mm -hmm. and I'm not. So I need to receive and yield. And if the Bible, if I, don't, if I read a book on 
I don't know, house maintenance. And I don't like what it says. I can just say, well, I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I prefer not to do it that way. When you read the Bible and you prefer not to do it that way, so much the worse for our preferences. It's very yeah. different from other books. Yeah, for sure. And, and we live in this postmodern world, don't we, where truth is now seen as subjective. And this has resulted in some people taking their own meaning from the word of God and applying it exactly how they want to as an individual. Talk about that, Dan. And why is this so dangerous? Yeah, well, it's dangerous, of course, because we can't manage ourselves. If we run the world through the grid, let's say the postmodern grid, one, one aspect of it that's pretty prominent right now is you can say anything you want as long as it doesn't offend me. Because if it offends me, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to kill me. You're saying I shouldn't exist. And um, we think, well, that, that's an interesting approach. It means that anything that runs against the grain of my preferences uh, must be rejected. And in fact, maybe even you should be silenced for saying anything like that. Now, the conception there, of course, is that my subjective experiences and intuitions, if I, I can find the truth by looking inside. And, you know, you can find some truth by looking inside. You know, you look inside and say, oh, I really like that song. But you can't govern your life by looking inside. And, of course, Christians believe that humans are creating God's image and glorious, but also fallen and, and a glorious ruin. And we need correction. And the subjectivist interpreter is probably going to be very resistant to the idea that there's a word from the outside from 2000 years ago that's going to correct me. I mean, how dare you say such a thing? And then, of course, we can't really hear from the Lord if that's our if that's our um, set of expectations or, or presuppositions when we read the Bible. Yeah. Here we are in 2022. The world looks like a very different place to how it did 2000 years ago, like you mentioned a few moments ago. Why is it important that we study and understand the historical context of the Bible, Dan? Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. One is one that I mentioned, of course, and that is the word, a word like king um, or potter. You know, God says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Well, and pottery is like a niche uh, side interest. You know, very few people are actually making pots for a living. And so we have to correct those things, pots and and uh, water. You know, Jesus says, I'm the water uh, in John chapter. He doesn't quite say I'm the water, but he comes to give us water, water to the full. There's lots of references to water and the preciousness of water in the Bible. And if you live in, um, I mean, I live in Missouri in the United States in the middle of the country, and we get kind of close to 50 inches of rain a year. Uh, I don't know how many, you know, centimeters. It'd be like 120 centimeters, so 1,200 millimeters. That's a lot. Uh, but there are a lot of places in the world where there's one quarter of that rainfall. And Israel's a place with very little rainfall and large swaths of the country, you know, six inches a year, 10 inches a year. And so the metaphors just sound very different. That's one thing. Of course, the Bible's written in Greek and Hebrew, slightly in Aramaic, just a little bit. And so you have to be a careful translator. And you have to know something about languages, which are, you know, comprehensible, but it takes work to translate well from one language to another. And in general, we have to, you know, just watch our presuppositions. So I won't speak to, you know, the, the Commonwealth. I'll speak about America. You know, we tend to read our values into the Bible. And yeah. people read things like choice and freedom into the Bible a lot in America. 
and self-actualization. And they find a verse that sounds kind of like that or somehow reminds them. And they say, oh, the Bible's all about my freedom as well. We're all actually bond servants of Christ. We're not all that free. I mean, we're free in some ways and not free in others. So we have to be careful of reading our culture in to the Bible. And we have to be careful that we not misconstrue the Bible because we just don't know how different the culture was then. Yeah. Yeah. What are some good resources or ways to start learning about the historical background of a Bible? What have been some of your favorites, Dan? Yeah. So um, I love as a starting point. So let me just say, and you invited me to do this. We're, we're talking because the second edition of getting the message came is out this week, more or less. And a, a pretty, pretty big revision. And one of the revisions is I've listed in the back a lot more resources. But there are things like the New Bible Dictionary. And there are things like Handbook of Theological Ethics and Bible Backgrounds Commentary by Craig Keener to the New Testament and a group of people did the Old Testament that are just terrific. And they're one or two volumes usually. You can buy them for a, a very you know, not a whole lot more than lunch for two people, maybe maybe lunch for three people. And they get world-class scholars who write an entire book about something and they'll get a 1,200 page article or a 2,500 page article. So it's just tremendous. And they, you know, the authors do this to serve the church and they do a great job of doing that. So Bible encyclopedias, Bible dictionaries, um, by the reputable publishers. And, you know, you can name the ones that people would think of, you know, where you are. Yeah. Be- because we know that the Bible wasn't written to us, but instead was written for us. How do we know what we can apply to ourselves and what were the specific promises to the people of that day? Yeah, that's an important question. So, um, so the Bible's written for us, not to us in the sense, it's just not just, you know, information or not written at us. We talked, uh, where I am at least about people who preach at you versus preach people who preach to you or for you in a spirit of love. And of course, that's what's there in the Bible. Uh, it's written for us, for our salvation, for our good, for our capacity to find the way of life and to flourish in all God's ways. So that's the first. And then the second part of your question was something about promises, right? Did that's I hear right, you right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things we have to do when we read the Bible is understand what kind of a promise we have when we see one. So when we have, for example, Genesis chapter 12, and God says to Abraham that I'm going to make you great, and you'll be a great nation, and you'll have descendants as numerous as the seashore. And there's also the promise you'll have a son. Well, that promise was given to Abraham. I actually have three daughters, no sons. I'm delighted with my daughters. God did when God said to Abraham, You will have a son, he wasn't telling every person who reads the Bible, you will have a son. Right? Yeah. So we have to ask, was this question given to a, an individual or to the people of God? Is this promise given to all Christians at all times? Or is it given for a particular time? So again, we can think about you know God promising David that he and his sons would sit in the throne. Well, there's no throne in Israel anymore. And so that promise was true for a time until the gross rebellion, and then it ended. Oh, but of course it was fulfilled in Christ. So a lot of promises are actually fulfilled in Christ, not in some linear way for us. 
So yeah. the you know a lot of the promises in the Bible that that tell us that God's going to care for us and prosper us. There are people who die. You know, there's there are people who die as martyrs, and and the care is not temporal care. We can't say, oh, you know, Lord, you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I take that to mean I'll get out of all the troubles I have. No, what it means is I'll be, never leave you or forsake you in the troubles you have, which which you know could lead to death. And then the other thing, you have to read the book of Proverbs very carefully, of course. So um, there are parts of Proverbs that lead, read like or naively seem like a promise, but they're actually a description of the way the world usually is. And so mm -hmm. one of the most uh, studied or contemplated or famous of those is Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And then Christians think, well, you know, I have five children and you know, one of them departed, or maybe I have three children and two of them departed from the faith. So what happened? How did that happen? Now, of course, they might become Christians or believers yet. Even after you die, they might become believers. That's one possibility. But another possibility is that it's wrong to take it as an absolute promise. This is the way the world usually works under God's blessing. Train up your child in the way they go, and they'll, they'll not depart from it. Some people go um, a different direction. They say, this is not a promise. It's an ironic statement. They say, you train up a child in the way he wants to go, the way he would go. And I promise you when he's older, he won't depart from it. And that's like a warning about, about indulging a child. And there may be truth to that, but I don't think it's what it means in the book of Proverbs. The way is God's way. But we go, people go to that ironic interpretation because there are a fair number of children who don't um, follow in their parents' footsteps in faith. And so we understand that so many Proverbs are are the normal way of wisdom, but not an absolute promise. Yeah, it's really helpful, Dan. Thank you. Tell us about eisegesis and exegesis and why it's important that we are aware of these principles when reading the Bible. Yeah, sure. So let me just define the terms as I understand them. Eisegesis is reading into the Bible and exegesis is reading out of the Bible. Eisegesis the, one, one of the meanings of the word ice is in, and one of the meanings of the word X is out. So reading in or reading out, when you read in, you're reading in your preferences. When you're reading out, you're discovering what's there, whether you like it or not, it's what the text says. So eisegesis uh, has a couple forms. Uh, one is uh, something like God loves a cheerful giver. And you think to yourself, well, my relative... It's just a poor giver. Christmas gift, they always give me poor gifts. And it's probably because they're not cheerful. And I, I guess this passage means that God doesn't love them. And they're under God's judgment for not giving me nice Christmas presents. That would be an extreme case of eisegesis, right? Um, exegesis is saying, okay, this says God loves a cheerful giver. Um I'm going to look up the word. Yeah, you know what it means? Cheerful. <laughs> There's no hidden meaning. And so it doesn't mean God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't mean he loves us if and only if we're cheerful givers. It means God's pleased when we give generously to people. It could be finance. It could be of our time. It could be, you know, you know, a meal when you know somebody's sick. And God's just pleased with that. That's what it means. And so, you know, a simple statement as God loves a cheerful giver can be read in very foolish ways. I gave a silly example, but it could also be read as 
conditional. I'm not cheerful, therefore God doesn't love me. No, that can't be what it means. Mm-hmm. It's in a passage about gifts, and so we, we we let the whole passage inform us. And the passage, Romans 12 says, you know, if you're a leader, you should lead, and a teacher, you should teach. Well, if you're a teacher, you should teach. If you're an exhorter, you should exhort. If you're a servant, you should serve. And then at the end, he says, oh, and by the way, it's not a matter of cold duty. God's pleased when you give cheerfully. And God's pleased when a leader acts with zeal. So that's, I know that's another topic we want to talk about, but eisegesis, exegesis also has a lot to do with reading in context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Before reading the Bible, you mentioned this a little bit earlier on, we already bring our presuppositions into the text, which actually can blind us to what's really going on, can't it? Um, Tell us about that, Dan. Yeah. Um, Let me see. Uh, Why don't you tell me a little bit more about what you would like? Um, So presuppositions, uh, the easiest one, which I kind of touched on a little while ago, is the idea, you know, Paul tells us that if uh, the sun has set you free, you're, you're free indeed, right? So we're free. Well, um, there are a lot of presuppositions about freedom in the West today, and that would include the idea that I should be able to carve out my own destiny, and I should be able to follow my heart, and I should um, be able to interpret my life, and, and you know, if I desire something, uh, God, you know, God gives us, God makes us as we are, and he made me, and he made me good. And therefore, my desires are good, and I'm free to to pursue my desires, whatever those desires might be. Well, I mean, that's that's a long ways from what the Bible means. Yeah, but what, right. what's happening there is you're importing Western presuppositions that a good life is the life that I choose, and that I should indulge my impulses or follow my impulses, or at least in America we say it a lot, follow my heart. Well, your heart may say that you want to be an astronaut and you have none of the skills to be an astronaut, right. none, yeah. or maybe a, you know, a long distance runner, but you're, you know, you're five, six and you weigh 274 pounds. You're probably, it's not going to happen. Um, so we don't want to read freedom and self-expression and self-fulfillment, self-actualization and the goodness. Here's one. Any anything that I feel sincerely is legitimate as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And that's not found in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say follow your heart. It says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And so I can't trust my heart. So people read things like that. Western presuppositions of the supremacy of choice and happiness and self-direction into the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it's just not there. We're not, obviously, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. We're not against people being happy, right? But uh, happiness is not found by just following our own inclinations. That's a presupposition. We have to have it corrected by the many teachings about the ways of the Lord and and the paths of God. And God is the one who corrects us and we correct our children, our spiritual leaders correct us and so forth. Yeah, really, really good. Thank you. Unlike any other books we can think of, people often pull a verse out of context and fail to fail to read around the passage to find out what's really going on. What are the dangers of doing this and what should we be doing, Dan? Well, you know, I like your question, but I want to object to it a little bit. Um, and the objection is people do it to everybody all the time. Uh, so <laughs> as a as a preacher and a 
professor, people say, well, you said this. I said, well, I did say that, but I said it was a bad idea. <laughs> I said this. I said, some people think all police are violent and corrupt. So you said all policemen are violent and corrupt. I said, that's a mistake. <laughs> so don't quote me that way. Yeah. So people do it all the time and they do it yeah. you know, to a lesser degree to anybody and everybody. Uh, and so it's human nature to grab a statement and not quite pay attention fully. Sometimes it can be innocent, realistically. Um, the real danger in quoting snippets of the Bible is that we make them um, narrow out what the Bible's saying and and reduce the Bible to maybe a snippet of a theological idea or moral, moral tale. So an easy example of that is, you know, David fights Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And we think, okay, David was really brave, which he was, it's true, he was really brave. And uh, that's why God favored him and he became king of Israel. And, and, you know, if you fight your giants, great things will happen. But the passage before that is God sending Samuel to David to anoint him as king. And God chose him to be king and equipped him to be king in chapter 16. And now in chapter 17, God is introducing him to Israel. And then in chapter 18, we're going to find out that not everybody wanted a new king to be introduced. And then we understand that it's not just a matter of, you know, fighting a great victory and then everything goes your way. Fight a great victory and people may hate you for it, which is really important to know uh, in many, many of our lives, unfortunately. So got to read 16 17 18 19 20 together or another way to look at it would be i mentioned abraham earlier you know in genesis well the book of romans let's just do the book of romans for a second um you know paul in romans 5 says that where sin abound abounds grace abounded all the more so then people say oh that's awesome so i can have the more i sin the more grace i get well, there's one sense of the word in which that's true, because God can forgive anybody, but then, oh, I want lots of grace, so I'll sin a lot. And then Paul, you know, immediately after understanding, he knows that can be misconstrued that way, says, so shall we sin the more that grace may abound? May it never be. No way. That's my translation yeah. of it. No way. Yeah. That would be terrible. You're united to Christ. You died to Christ. You, you died with Christ. You died to sin. You've been raised to life with Christ. No, you're now weapons of righteousness. So he has to say to to uh, give us the scope of the gospel that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We need to hear that. But if we just take that verse, we'll completely miss the idea that that grace abounding is not a license to sin at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we know that from reading the whole Bible. So that's one example we could look at obviously many others yeah yeah brilliant what do we mean when we say that we must let scripture interpret scripture uh we mean that uh we should do what we've been doing right now <laughs> if you get a verse like sin you know um the more sin abounds the concept the more sin abounds the more grace abounds you can't just take that um you have to read it in the context of the whole bible which makes yeah. it clear that God has called us to be his holy people, his holy nation. Um, so in general, anytime you read something like, um, you know, ideas, I'm, you know, to be, to be honest with you, 
I've had these meetings and I, I don't have a Bible with me. It's terrible. I want to look up Bible verses because I'm a very poor memorizer. I'm a very good paraphraser, and a terrible memorizer. It's like that part of my brain is missing. I can't memorize anything for any reason. So, um, you know, there are passages in the Bible basically say, you know, whatever you ask the Lord, he'll give you. And, you know, ask in faith and ask with a grain of mustard seed and God will grant your request. So people think, okay. And, and I've heard people say this. I mean, I, when I was a young Christian, I had quasi mentors who told me this. They said, well, you know, we agreed where two or three of you agree and ask anything in my name. There am I in your midst. And we're going to put that with a verse that says whatever you ask in, in faith, even the faith of mustard seed, you'll, you'll get it. Okay, so we're going to pray for an apartment to live in, in a cool part of town. It's pretty big and pretty nice for $400 a month. Right. 600 yeah. pounds a month. And they got it. It happened. And they said, okay, great. That was, that was wonderful. Next, we're going to pray for a BMW for each of us. And we have $5,000. We want a, we want a, a pretty new BMW. We know we can't get a brand new one. We want like a two-year-old BMW for 5000 each. And we're asking in faith. Well, that's not what it means. And there are lots of other verses in the Bible that tell us that if we ask selfishly, like James 4, God's not going to hear our prayers. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask according to his will. And we have, you know, Jesus, if it be your will, Father, take this cup from me. And Paul, you know, did not have the thorn uh, in his flesh removed. So we we have to read the whole picture and understand. Furthermore, it's appointed to men once to die, right? And after that, to face the judgment. So everybody faces an illness from which we don't recover. And people right. are probably praying for our, for our recovery yeah. from the illness. Yeah. So we have to read the whole Bible. Yeah. together yeah or else we misunderstand yeah. things badly yeah we know that the bible is a collection of 66 different books made up of various types of genres why is it important that we know this before opening up the bible well yes absolutely so we need to understand that history and law and prophecy and apocalyptic literature and proverbs exist because we interpret them a little bit differently so um, what would be a, a good example of that? When you, when you read law, you know it's telling you what to do. But you also know that if you study laws, that laws have general principles and very specific rules. So, for example, love your neighbors yourself. Well, that's a very broad principle, but it doesn't tell us exactly how to do it. And so we have to use our judgment and prayer. We have to understand that. It's not gonna, the Bible's never going to tell us every way we love our neighbor. When we get very particular commands, they're often inapplicable today. So like if you see your donkey's neighbor, wand, sorry, your neighbor's donkey wandering off, take it back to him. And then it also says, if you see your enemy's donkey, take it back. Well, actually, that's expanding on love your neighbors yourself and it's expanding on property laws. So... The way we read something like that is, well, I don't have any donkeys, so I don't have to help anybody. No, no, a donkey was 3,000-some years ago, very valuable property. And so we would say, okay, what's the valuable property of the day where somebody might need help? So I'll, I'll apply it that way. And you have to know how law works. When you read narrative, the great danger is to be very moralistic and say, you know, well, God took care of David or God... God took care of um, 
I don't know, the apostles in a storm at sea. And so he's going to take care of me. That's the thing I get out of it. Well, yes, God takes care of his people, but the, the storm at sea is about Jesus and God caring for the people of Israel and caring for David and Samuel and Hezekiah and, and others is a story of him delivering his people. It's not individualistic. It's it's about the grand sweep of, of God's covenant love. When we go to the storm at sea, the real point is that Jesus is the is the Lord of storms and he's the great I am, you know, and he's the one who rescues us in the storms. Not that we'll be okay in storms, but right, Jesus right. is the rescuer. It's Christ centered. So when you read history, you got to make sure you're not focusing on the characters, the exclusion of God and um, the triumph God will say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you have to understand what the rules are for each genre and to do that. I don't want to make it sound like to read the Bible, you have to know what genre you're reading. Like, I better find that, that out. But intuitively, if you read the Bible enough, you, you do need to understand that not everything in history is going to simply apply directly to me. Right. Yeah. And I have to ask, where do I fit in the story of redemption? And not every law is going to apply directly to me. If here's one, can I give you this one? If we were in the same room or yeah. not, I mean, the Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Would would we have kissed each other, David? Would we have kissed each other? Maybe a fist bump. Maybe a fist bump. Okay. And so you have to interpret that. In that culture, you greeted with a holy kiss, which was not on lips. It was cheek to cheek. It was male to male and female to female. It wasn't men kissing women on the lips and so forth. But you also need to understand that the main verb is actually greet. And the object is one another. With a holy kiss is how they did it in that culture. So we mm -hmm. greet one another. That's the real command. Not the command isn't kiss yeah. each other. Yeah. The command is greet yeah. each other. And then how do you do it? Well, in some cultures you do it with a kiss, and then we might do it with a fist bump or pat each other yeah. in the shoulders or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. just have to understand where you are so you don't make naive mistakes and misconstrue yeah. and you know, people are running around kissing each other in church and <laughs> trouble breaks out. <laughs> That's really helpful, Dan. Thank you. Every now and again, every now and again, when we're reading our Bible, we can come up against a problem passage that seems hard to understand or even reconcile with other parts of Scripture. Yeah. Tell us about this, Dan, and what are some practical tips to help us overcome this? Yeah, to overcome passages that we don't understand, the first thing you have to do is say, "I'm not going to write this off, blow this off," and simply say, "It can't mean that." It may mean that. So what you have to do if you're a, now I'm not going to speak to the lay reader right now, but like a, a teacher of the Bible, somebody teaches a lot in the church, maybe a lay teacher or a pastor, you got to work at it. When you see something that doesn't seem to make any sense, you have to say, I mean, for example, the teachings about circumcision, you know, it's required in the Old Testament, but then New Testament circumcision doesn't count for anything. It's nothing. On the other hand, then Paul wanted to take one of one of his entourage and get him circumcised. What's going on? So you, you just have to dig into it and find out what's going on. Um, or you look at Paul's different sermons and acts and how one is full of Old Testament quotations and another appeals to an unknown God and quotes pagan philosophers. And so somebody says, well, to be an evangelist, we have to quote pagan philosophers. Um, 
Well, that's not the right conclusion. You're going to look at all Paul's speeches and notice how he just fi finds a point of contact. You know, he's not always quoting pagan philosophers. He does that in Athens, where everybody's a philosopher. Yeah. yeah. So the, the riddle, why does Paul approach things the way he does, could actually require you to read all the sermons in the book of Acts. Peter's sermons, Paul's sermons, Stephen's message. And you notice that there's an unchanging thrust with ever-changing methods. And that takes hours. You don't just find that in a book, right? And you can go to commentaries. And I recommend commentaries. I've spent a fair amount of my life writing commentaries. They're very beneficial. Um, but you don't always get an answer out of commentary. You may have to read to, under, to grasp why something's happening in Acts 18 or 17. You mm -hmm. may need to go back and read chapters 2 to 16 and detect the patterns. So yeah. um, I hope this answer your question. Is that a good enough answer? Oh, abs yeah, absolutely. And what we'll do as well, Dan, is we'll find a lot of your commentaries and we'll make sure that they're listed in the description below as well. So wherever you're listening to this or watching this interview, make sure that you, you check out a lot of Dan's work. Um, going to be really helpful um, in that area. Dan, as English speakers, we are blessed to have the, the many translations available to us. What should we be looking for when choosing a reliable translation? And what are some of the differences? Yeah, so that's a great question. And of course, um, American translations and English translations are shared to some extent, but not completely, right? So I don't know how much people still read the King James Bible in England or the New English yeah, Bible. Yeah, not so much. Not as not much so now. Much. Right. Do you, use, uh, do you use the NIV and the ESV? Pretty much. Yeah, and, and the New American Standard Bible as well. For yep, NASB. Right, yeah, ESV. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And do you use CSB or it used to be called Holman Bible? Not as that, much. Yeah, that, that's a good translation, too. So what you need to do is actually, I recommend that everybody have two Bible translations. And one that's more literal, like the ESV. NASB is almost hyper-literal to the point that it doesn't quite sound right as English, in places at least. So if it's more literal, then you know it's, um, you're going to have to do more interpretation, explain it to a child or to a novice, but if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, if you read the ESV or the NASB, you know it's closer to the original text, which is not a slam on NIV. NIV is written to be readable in public and helps you out with some of the rough spots, but it does do a little bit of interpretation from time to time and will avoid the use of a word that uh, not many people use today, especially, uh, you know, like the children's NIV, which is, you know, uses very simple language. And you just have to know that if you pick one up, that this is yeah. going to sound quite different. So what you want to do usually is have at least two Bibles, ESV, more literal, but still readable, NIV, looser. CSB is kind of in between. And there are others that are in between. So the most important thing is, and I have a resource in this book as well, you know, kind of sizing up the different translations is to know what the strategy is of the English translation you're using. Mm -hmm. the more literal ones like NASB, ESV are good for study. And if you're teaching or preaching people that might not know as much, you might use something like the NIV because right. it's more comprehensible to a modern ear. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Dan, how should we pray before reading the Bible and how important is it that we do? Well, that's I love that question. And I think the answer is, you can read the Bible without praying, 
that's it's not a sin to read the Bible without praying, and people probably do that regularly. And I'm not against that at all. Somebody may get up in the morning and they say, you know, the first thing I do is read the Bible. As long as you pray afterward, right? Uh, but it's certainly good to pray as you open the Bible and ask God to illumine the text, to open your heart, perhaps to rejoice, perhaps to confess a sin, to be redirected, maybe. Maybe you're a teacher by nature and encouragers or something in here that I can use to encourage somebody else in some way. So, of course, we should always ask questions like, Lord, would you show me who you are? Would you show me what you've done? Would you reveal to me who I am and how I can become more like my Lord Jesus? Those are all really good prayers to offer up. If you're a teacher... You know, you could pray that you would understand the passage fully. You might even pray for no interruptions if you're preparing a lesson for a few hours. Or you could pray that the interruptions would be really good ones <laughs> yeah, that, that are helpful somehow. Um, so those are there's a lot of things we can pray. The, the thing we don't want to do is read the Bible mechanically. So, right. so after church, yeah. we read the Bible. On the way home, we read the text over. That's great, but it's not great if it's just a mechanical activity. Right. Or I read the Bible for five minutes before I go to bed at night, and then I can go to sleep. Well, that's not quite the best. It's not evil to do that, but we would hope for more than just a ritual yeah. or a habit. Yeah, brilliant. Dan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts? Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, you know, I'm just so delighted for, for your ministry and what you're trying to do and to, you know, get Bible interpretation and Bible understanding into the uh, hands of the people. And I appreciate what you're doing. And of course, there's always a need for people who are, who are teachers and interpreters. I guess there's one thing I'll say, and that is this, I'm not saying this to promote my own book, but just as a reality. I wrote the book, Getting the Message. I started writing it when I was a college professor. And I had a lot of engineers and, uh, you know, whatever field, you know, business majors. And they just wanted to love the Lord and understand the Bible better. And I wrote the book with, I'll say, sort of college juniors or sophomores in mind. But as I wrote it, I also thought, for various reasons, had contacts with the innumerable pastors who have no formal training at all and they may just have a bible and maybe a bible dictionary you know throughout the world in in many countries that don't have the educational privileges we do so i wrote the book for them also you if, if you have your bible and a little simple guide to how to interpret the bible you can really make a lot of progress so yeah. i don't want you know a lot of things are exist at multiple levels so I'm I'm still an avid tennis player. I'm a pretty old guy, but I still play pretty hard. And, you know, sometimes I play people much, much younger than I am in leagues, and sometimes I beat them. But I'm not under any illusion about how good I am. I'm not a pro. I'm not even close to a pro. I can't beat local pros. I can't beat good local college players, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that's my level is I'm a pretty good older former athlete who still plays tennis. And then there's all the way up to the to the pros. And there's the best in the world. And in the Bible, it's kind of similar. I mean, there are world-class scholars who understand things 
by dint of extraordinary labor and they write technical works and then they filter down to people who are writing less technical works and making available to pastors. And a lot of people could be pretty decent Bible interpreters if they want to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a woman or a man who's not gone to college or university who wants to read the Bible well can make real progress in understanding God's word by just following a few basic rules, put it in context, as you said, know what genre we're in, compare scripture to scripture so we find the themes, you know, certain other rules, and you can be a pretty fair interpreter. Yeah. You're not going to be a pro. You, you can really gain a lot and greatly enjoy the activity, mm -hmm. even as we enjoy our sports, even if we're not all that good at them, right? I love that, Dan. Dan, what's the best way for people to keep in touch with your work? Oh, boy. The best way, I don't know, read my books. <laughs> um, uh, I'm the only Dan Doriani in the world, so it's easy to find me. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, I'm actually Russian Jewish on my father's side. Doriani was a stage name, so there, there's not one other Dan Doriani in the world, so you can find me very easily. I do also have a podcast. It's about faith and work. That's another interest of mine. And uh, because my name is so unusual, it's called Working with Dan Doriani. And you can find that too. And, and that's a lot of fun. I've had some great guests. So if you like podcasts, and if you're listening to this, you must like them a little, you might try that out. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure that there's a link to your podcast in the description below as well. Dan, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto your, onto your podcast. Thank you, Dan.